Welcome to the Scripture Study Project, a fresh and faithful study of the scriptures that will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you're learning to others. I am Krista, and I am here with my husband, Zach, and we are excited to be back today talking about Alma chapter 8 through 16. Episode 24, and I have the eye of the tiger going through my head. And tonight... We are breaking every podcast rule and chewing gum while we record this. So we're going to try and conceal it. If you can hear it, we're very sorry. If at the end of this episode you have Eye of the Tiger stuck in your head and you've been bugged by our chewing, then we apologize. (laughs) We hope you'll forgive us. Yeah. Our study tip for this episode is study in context, not out of context. So here's what that means. We are really, really good at grabbing verses or phrases from the scriptures, pulling them out of the scriptures and highlighting them, footnoting them, looking at cross-references, connecting them in chains, printing them on papers, putting them on our wall, framing them, doing that cool lettering thing that is really popular in writing in verses, all of which is good, none of which is bad, but that's pulling verses out of context. And sometimes pulling a verse out of context is like pulling one particular element out of a painting. That cabin in the foreground doesn't make sense without the trees and the lake and the waterfall and the blue sky behind it. Sometimes that scripture that we pull out of context isn't as powerful as if we were to examine it in its context. What's the story that's happening there? What's the sermon? Why is this particular author giving that sermon? And so when we study scriptures, maybe we can pause after finding that verse we really like and go back into the scriptures and look at the story, look at the greater context. And I do have to stick up for the fact that sometimes we pull those hand-lettered things because we do know the story behind Mm -hmm. it and Mm -hmm. it's something that reminds us of those stories. But anyway, I think that makes a good point. Um, the, the, The thing I was thinking of is we've all been there. You've been here where you get assigned a talk, maybe in church, in sacrament meeting, and you the first thing you do, you're assigned the topic of charity, and the first thing you do is you Google charity. Maybe you add LDS to it or something at the end, and then you choose the top five verses that you find, or however that happens. But, and when that does happen, instead of just going to those verses and saying, oh, this is perfect, this is exactly what I'm looking for, maybe go back 15 verses or go ahead 10 verses and just maybe try and really read before and back so you can get that context behind or with whatever scriptures it is that you're finding. I think that can bring a lot of beauty, like you're talking about in that painting, Mm -hmm. to a verse that is already beautiful but that has a lot more to it that can bring a lot to your study. Yeah. When you teach, or you're teaching, there's right? power in doing that as well. Instead of assigning out five random verses from the topical guide on a particular topic, give people a story or a sermon, put those verses back in context, and allow that beauty to arise naturally from the scriptures instead of the sort of manufactured way that often we do it. Okay. Episode 24 the idea for this, I don't know, kind of starts with with those, oh, a couple of years ago, they started, they really popular. Remember the fail videos? 
I don't, but I should because I'm sure you showed me lots of them. Well, I think I showed them to the kids <laughs> more than anything else. But oh, you know you were showing them to me. <laughs> Look at this funny thing. Um, <laughs> so those I know this is not new, but fail videos where someone's skateboarding and they fall down and they run into a pole or they're trying to do something and it fails. The first time I saw it, that's I thought that's not new. This is just American funniest home videos 2.0 or 3.0 whatever mm-hmm. but the idea has been around forever that we're we're drawn to failure and of course in those examples we laugh at it but even when we're not laughing at it we're drawn to it there's something compelling about failure and i kind of wonder if in failure there's the seed of creativity or maybe even the seed of revelation um elder scott gave a talk years ago called Finding Joy in Life, where he talks about a particular kind of failure. He says this, sadness, disappointment, and severe challenge are events in life, not life itself. I do not minimize how hard some of these events are. They can extend over a long period of time, but they should not be allowed to become the confining center of everything you do. The Lord inspired Lehi to declare the foundational truth that men are that they might have joy. That is a conditional statement, that they might have joy. It is not conditional for the Lord, but it is conditional for us. And then he teaches this, and I love this image. A pebble held close to the eye appears to be a gigantic obstacle. Cast on the ground, it is seen in perspective. Likewise, problems or trials, or we would add failures in our lives, need to be viewed in the perspective of spiritual doctrine. Otherwise, they can easily overtake our vision, absorb our energy, and deprive us of the joy and beauty the Lord intends us to receive here on earth. Some people are like rocks thrown into a sea of problems. They are drowned by them. Be a cork when submerged in a problem fight to be free and bob up to serve again with happiness i think sometimes when these hard things happen it becomes the identifier of who we are and that instead of that let's remember who we are first and foremost Mm -hmm. and what's most important is a child of god and a disciple of christ that's such a unifying no matter what what we have going on that's a unifying thing that um, can bring us together But then the second aspect of that, of just thinking how big those things can seem when we don't have the right perspective, you know, that rock. I really like that. And choosing to have, you know, he says it here, that idea of of happiness in Baba. I like that idea of the cork. Yeah, it's a fun image. Yeah. Well, that's what what we want to use to view today because Alma 8 through 16 is almost nothing but failure. And to be clear... This episode isn't about failure that comes when we sin or failure that comes when we're lazy or failure that comes when we're incompetent. We're not talking about failure that's our fault. Yeah, we're not answering to maybe something we feel that God is calling Mm -hmm. us to do. The example, at least now my 8 through 16, is failure that comes when you're doing everything right. This is the classic question of why do bad things happen to good people? Alma is the prophet and yet he's met with almost nothing but failure as he goes to Ammonihah. Why? Why does God allow failure? Why does he allow it to happen to us when we're on his errand doing what he wants us to do and even in the way that he wants us to do it? 
There seems to be a purpose. And what we want to do today is pull the pebble away from the eye, see it in a better perspective so that hopefully we can understand why it is that God allows us to fail and what his purposes are when we do it. So the story is Alma, who two episodes ago was in Zarahemla, one episode ago was in Gideon, now goes to the city of Ammonihah. In Zarahemla and Gideon, his preaching was met or received really well. The people repented, they had a change of heart, or they rejoiced. And so he goes to Ammonihah, this kind of frontier city um, that's filled with frontier or fringe Nephites. They're, they're probably better classified as Nehorites. They're the ones that believe the priests should be paid and that money and pride are important. He goes to the city, he preaches to them, and they reject him. This it says is, they... They reviled him and spit upon him. Yeah. I think that's enough to make you feel like a failure. <laughs> so they kick him out, and then he leaves, and he goes to the next city. And failure number one is he's rejected. And I think that's a very relatable failure to us. How many times in your life, how many times in my life, have I felt like I was called to do something, supposed to do something, and I did it, and it didn't work? And why not? Well, as Alma's walking away from Ammonihah, he's met by an angel. And the first thing the angel tells him I love because it shifts our focus about failure. This is Alma 8, verse 15. The angel appears to him and says, Blessed art thou, Alma. And that word blessed always catches my attention because I think if I'm Alma and I've just been spit upon and reviled and cast out of the city to which I was sent to preach, the last thing I'm feeling is blessed. And yet I think the idea here is what Alma sees or could see as a failure, God does not see as failure. In fact, he sees it as a blessing. The angel commands Alma to return to Ammonihah, and it's a testimony to Alma's enthusiasm and trust in God that in verse 18, it says that Alma turns around and immediately heads back to Ammonihah. But the phrase that we liked, and we spent a lot of time studying this in verse 18, is as he goes back to the city of Ammonihah, he enters by another way, and as he enters that other way, he meets Amulek. And of course, from here on out, Alma and Amulek will be inseparable as missionary companions. And I think if we look at this in this frame of why did he why did he fail and how was it a blessing? I think one of the first things I think of is this. Sometimes when we fail, we really, well, we get humbled often, of mm -hmm. course. And it brings this different perspective to whatever our situation is. And you see that that is exactly what Alma experienced here. Um, Zach mentioned the verse in that part of verse 18, he entered the city by another way. And something I, th I was thinking of just barely as we were studying is he would have never known another way to get into the city had he not already been there. Mm -hmm. And maybe this was, it's kind of interesting, right? To think about that. How did he know the other way? Mm -hmm. It doesn't say if he, if he thought of it himself or if, Maybe the angel, you know, maybe they didn't record everything the angel told, told him, or maybe he just felt prompted in that way to get there. But what a different perspective he has now. And maybe even knowing, okay, I'm definitely not going to go in that way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to go a different way. And 
that he knew that God wanted him to keep going and he did it. Mm -hmm. So failure number one is rejection. And answer number one is God sometimes lets us fail because it forces us to think in a new way, to take a new path, or to meet a new person. Maybe we sometimes feel this way as we're repenting or as we make mistakes, the same mistake after the same mistake. But I love this um, quote from Elder Robin's talk from last conference, April 2018, until 70 times 7. He quotes Thomas Edison. He says, well, Elder Robin says, With his invention of the light bulb, Thomas Edison purportedly said, quote, I didn't fail 1,000 times. The light bulb was an invention with 1,000 steps. And certainly you can think of some of those inspired inventions that took a lot of failures, and I think we can apply that in this situation of don't give up because sometimes failure is just a part of the process. Yeah, that's a great point. Failure number two, once Alma and Amulek are now united as missionary companions, they start to preach to the people in Ammonihah, and no one listens except for one person, Zeezrom, who... <laughs> tries to bribe Amulek to deny Christ. There's a whole chapter almost, chapter 11 in here, is an entire chapter on Nephite coinage so that they can set up the exact amount that Zeezrom uses to bribe Amulek to underscore how big of a bribe this is and how big of a deal this is, um, and of course to highlight Amulek's complete refusal to accept the bribe. And so failure number two is... Um, they're met with skepticism, to put it, I guess, in the lightest terms, or complete hostility, to put it in the harshest terms. And again, that's something I think we recognize. When we announce our intentions to do something good, sometimes the response from the world is, at the least, skepticism, and at the most, outright harsh criticism. What I think is so fascinating with this is, without this failure, without this exchange, without this kind of head-to-head -head verbal sparring between Amulek and Zeezrom, what happens to Zeezrom afterwards couldn't happen. Here's the scripture chain to follow. Chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. The narrator says, Now when Alma had spoken these words, Zeezrom began to tremble more exceedingly, for he was convinced more and more of the power of God. And he was also convinced that Alma and Amulek had a knowledge of him, for he was convinced that they knew the thoughts and intents of his heart. And then verse 8, Zeezrom began to inquire of them diligently that he might know more concerning the kingdom of God. That's the beginning of his process. In chapter 14, verse 6, Zeezrom is astonished at what they teach him. Um, in fact, he will be one of the ones that tries to defend Alma and Amulek later as they're in prison. He leaves or is cast out of Ammonihah, and he leaves thinking that Alma and Amulek are going to die because of him, or at least in part because of him. So he gets really, really sick. In chapter 15, Alma and Amulek visit him and heal him miraculously. And then the cool part is this. Zeezrom becomes the third member of the Alma and Amulek power missionary companionship. It Almost every place where it mentions Alma's missionary group, which includes Alma and Amulek, the sons of Mosiah, Alma's sons, Zeezrom is part of that group. And one of the, the 
I don't know, highlights of his life, or at least in the scriptures about his life, is in Helaman 5, verse 41, Zeezrom is quoted along with Alma and Amulek as preaching repentance. So we get this great, powerful, converted missionary that comes because Alma and Amulek feel at least like they failed or could feel like they failed because they meet with hostility and and skepticism when they try and preach the gospel. And sometimes I think it's important for us to recognize that we're just that, maybe that small, especially when we're dealing with other people, that maybe we're just this very small piece of the puzzle. We're being used as an instrument from God that we don't see necessarily the end of what's going to happen, but that we're doing a small, a small piece of his work. I love that analogy from Elder Anderson, his talk on missionary work, that we're all a piece of, of the puzzle. And I think this is a perfect example of that. I like the word instrument. I had this image in my head of if I'm the scalpel in God's hands, I might think that my work is really negative and brutal and bloody, right? I'm used to cut and sever and dice and slice but the scalpel is an essential tool for healing. If I can't make the incisions and cut, and my brother's a surgical tech, he's going to listen to this and roll his eyes. But if <laughs> if I'm not, if there's not a scalpel, then there's no there's no surgery and there's no healing. And sometimes I might be that tool. I might be the tool that God uses <laughs> to cause repeated failures, so that people can have the Thomas Edison experience. Maybe I'm their 999th failure so that now God can step in and be the 1,000th time when they actually experience success, when they repent or when they feel touched. And I think that brings back to the perspective portion of mm -hmm. things. If you're only looking right at the instrument versus maybe if you're standing above what's happening, you can see things differently. The third failure is the hardest because it's personal and it's painful. This is in chapter 14. Um, Alma and Amulek can't be silenced. And so the people of Ammonihah turn not against them anymore, but against those who have either been believers before they came or who have listened even to their words once they were there. And in chapter 14, this painful verse that I think is glossed over. And so I want to read it slowly because I think there's a lot of emotion here that we may miss. Verse 8. They brought their wives and children together, and whosoever believed or had been taught to believe in the word of God, they caused that they should be cast into the fire. And they also brought forth their records, which contained the holy scriptures, and cast them into the fire also, that they may be burned and destroyed by the fire. If I'm Alman Amulek sitting there, I don't know if I could have helped but feel like a complete failure. Not only did we not convert any of these people in Ammonihah, but anyone that even listened to us, anyone that we talked to, gets thrown into this fire. Verse 10, when Amulek saw the pains of the women and children who were consumed in the fire, he was also pained. And he said to Alma, how can we witness this awful scene? Therefore, let us stretch forth our hands and exercise the power of God, which is in us, and save them from the flames. And Alma responds, we can't. God forbids us, or God is stopping us from saving them. This is just book of me. But I kind of think that the point of verse 10 is to highlight 
Amulek's personal pain, I think it's his wife and his children. I think it's his family that's getting thrown into the fire. This is his hometown. And Alma stays in his house. And after this, Amulek leaves Ammonihah and doesn't come back. He goes with Alma, goes to Alma's home. He's got no family left. I kind of think this is Amulek's family. Talk about feeling like a failure. So why does God let it happen? Why this last and most painful failure? I think one answer to that came from a talk from Elder Hallstrom in October 2017, has the Day of Miracles ceased. And he begins his talk with the story of a man who falls from the top of a cliff. and It's like a 300-foot fall, wasn't it? Yeah, I think a free fall and then a tumble mm -hmm. 300 feet. Um, and he was, you know, miraculously discovered. And he happened... A, a group of hikers happened upon him, you know, and this is all in quotes. It just happened. They happened to be testing a new communication device that allowed them to call a helicopter and they were able to make the, the land so he could get on there. And then when he gets to the hospital, he's completely broken apart. And um, there's a neurotrauma surgeon who's only there once a year, but just happens to be on duty. And Elder Hallstrom recognizes that, yes, this is a miracle. But then the part of this talk that he goes on to say is, he says, in pondering the experience of the Fales family, I have thought much about the circumstances of so many others. What about the innumerable faith-filled priesthood blessing receiving, unending prayed for, covenant keeping, full of hope, Latter-day Saints, whose miracles never come, at least in the way they understand a miracle? at least in the way that others appear to receive miracles. What about those who suffer from profound afflictions, physically, mentally, and emotionally, for years or for decades, or for their entire mortal life? What about those who die so very young? He's adding some more questions to what, we've, what has been asked mm. here by Amulek. But I think this really puts things into good perspective. And he goes on to teach us, Do good people and their loved ones have reason to ask the question posed by Mormon? Has the day of miracles ceased? My limited knowledge cannot explain why sometimes there is divine intervention and other times there is not. But perhaps we lack an understanding of what constitutes a miracle. It's a great idea and a great framing of how to look at this. A lot of times we define failure by saying, what I want to have happen didn't happen, or the way I wanted to have something happen didn't happen. But I don't know if that's how God defines failure, because sometimes what I want to have happen, oftentimes what I want to have happen, isn't what he wants to have happen, or at least not the primary thing he wants to have happen. If a miracle is God doing his work to save his people, if that's the broadest and grandest definition of a miracle, then it follows that sometimes what I define as a failure is actually a miracle in embryo. It's the beginning of some miraculous work God is doing. Uh, I was looking right after the, the uh, people in Ammonihah are thrown into the fire. Alma, in explaining to Amulek why they're not going to use the priesthood to rescue them, states a miracle by prophecy. He says, this is verse 11, the spirit constraineth me that I must not stretch forth my hand. For behold, the Lord receiveth them unto himself in glory. 
right there, Alma just proclaims everyone that was thrown into that fire, those that believed and those that were taught to believe have now been received into the celestial kingdom of God. That is a miracle. That's God's miracle. That makes me think of that Elder Scott quote that you read in the beginning of that. Um, these things aren't easy for us mm-hmm. to deal with, and I'm sure it wasn't easy for Amulek, but the perspective um, of that God has versus our own mm-hmm. and that pebble that, you know, it seems like this, but in God's eyes, he sees much more than we do. Yeah. In the verses at the end of the chapter, 26 through 29, Alma and Amulek are thrown into prison and they are miraculously saved from prison. The prison crumbles to the ground. And I love this verse in verse 29. When the people saw Alma and Amulek coming forth out of the prison and the walls thereof had fallen to the earth, they were struck with great fear and fled from the presence of Alma and Amulek, even as a goat fleeth with her young from two lions. There's this great, the second great miracle. And then in chapter 16, this may not seem like a miracle, but I did a little bit of research from some commentaries. And now in chapter 16, a Lamanite army comes in and completely obliterates Ammonihah. That doesn't seem like a miracle. However, there are some hints in here that Ammonihah was plotting war against Zarahemla, that they wanted to take over the, the city of Zarahemla, take over the Nephites, usurp their freedom, and establish a king. There have been armies and, and revolutionaries with this idea before. Did God prevent war, prevent disruption of peace through this miracle? It sounds weird to call it that, but this miracle of the army coming in and destroying Ammonihah. I don't know, but clearly God is at work in Ammonihah. So from Alma and Amulek's perspective, it looks like they failed. No one listens. They throw, they throw our family into the fire. It looks for all the world like failure. But from God's perspective, I think it might be a miracle. Mm-hmm. Especially, I like to think of, sometimes we don't know the ending mm-hmm. of our own failures, quote-unquote failures, but that God sees sees things differently than we do. And when we follow his the pathway that he sets up for us, that we're really seeking to do the things that he wants us to do. And even if we, we feel failures along the way that he is there to guide us and direct us and help us to learn from those failures and really that we can learn from them. So just to recap, three reasons, of course, there are more why God may let us fail. Number one, Sometimes God lets us fail so that we think of things in a new way or take a new path or meet a new person. Number two, sometimes God lets us fail because we're the 999th failure and he steps in and causes the success with the individual. Number three, sometimes failure is just the seed of a greater miracle. Thank you for studying with us. This has been exciting for us. And we hope that this is practical to you, that it makes a difference, and that maybe you can view your life with a little bit more optimism and understanding this week. Thanks for being here. Have a great day.